Welcome to the Autoimmune Wellness Podcast, a complimentary resource for those on the road to recovery. I'm Mickey Trescott, a nutritional therapy practitioner living well with autoimmune disease in Oregon. I've got both Hashimoto's and celiac disease. And I'm Angie Alt, a certified health coach and nutritional therapy consultant, also living well with autoimmune disease in Maryland. I have endometriosis, lichen sclerosis, and celiac disease. After recovering our health by combining the best of conventional medicine with effective and natural dietary and lifestyle interventions, Mickey and I started blogging at autoimmune-paleo.com, where our collective mission is seeking wellness and building community. This podcast is sponsored by the Autoimmune Wellness Handbook, our co-authored guide to living well with chronic illness. We saw the need for a comprehensive resource that goes beyond nutrition to connect savvy patients just like you to the resources they need to achieve vibrant health. Through the use of self-assessments, checklists, handy guides, and templates, you get to experience the joy of discovery, finding out which areas to prioritize on your healing journey. Pick up a copy wherever books are sold. A quick disclaimer, the content in this podcast is intended as general information only and is not to be substituted for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. On to the podcast. Hi, everybody. This is Angie. Welcome to the Autoimmune Wellness Podcast, Episode 9. Today, we are taking you in-depth on the topic of rest. Hey, Mickey, how's it going today? Awesome. How about you, Angie? It's going well. I'm super excited to talk to our guest today. How about you? Yeah, I'm very excited. Okay. I've been following this guy for a long time, and I'm really honored that he's here with us today. Our guest is Dan Party, who is a well-known expert on today's topic. Dan is the CEO of Dan's Plan, a program that helps people track key health behaviors and provides lifestyle guidance. He is a sleep researcher with Stanford University and Leiden University in the Netherlands, in addition to working with Naval Special Warfare. Those of you in the paleo community are probably already familiar with Dan through his presentations at the Ancestral Health Symposium and Paleo FX. You guys, Dan is in a rural location today, so just forgive the connection and listen carefully. Dan, thank you for taking the time to share with us on the topic of rest, and welcome to the show. How are you today? I'm doing great. What a kind intro. Thank you for having me on. We're so excited to have you here. So Dan, we were curious if you have any personal experience with sleep issues that motivated you to become a sleep researcher or to start looking into sleep. Well, I sure did. Actually, it was very serendipitous, the timing. I was experiencing some pretty profound sleep issues. I'll explain those in a moment. At the same time, I started a job at a pharmaceutical company that has a product for the treatment of narcolepsy, which is a rare disorder that affects about 1 in 200,000 people. Most people have heard of narcolepsy. It's synonymous with sleepiness for most people, a condition that I knew nothing about, but then learned a lot about. And at the same time, I was maintaining a very normal pattern of lifestyle for somebody my age. I was, I think, 26 years old at the time. I was going to bed at a regular hour during the week, somewhere between probably 11 and 12. And then on the weekends, I would stay up until, you know, two or three and go out and, you know, just being social. Even then, I've always been really interested in my health and have tried to do the right things. So eat the right food and exercise and all that. I didn't know anything about sleep at the time. And so my focus entirely was to try to get adequate amount of time in bed. So I would, if I went to bed later, I would just try to sleep in later. And I maintained this pattern for, you know, for a long time. 
but it, it caught up with me. I started to not feel as rested today. And so during the day, during the week, I was really, really tired, so much so that it was very stressful. I wasn't very performing very well in meetings. I would need to take a nap during the day. Um, so I would sometimes just try to find you know, an empty desk space where I could crawl under and, and nap for a little bit. It was embarrassing, but I didn't know what to do about it. And I was also worried about driving. It wasn't just a little bit of sleepiness. It was pretty severe. I got a sleep study done at Stanford. And they told me that my level of sleepiness was on par with somebody who actually has narcolepsy. The word circadian means about 24 hours. And our body runs on these cycles. But these cycles are very dependent upon signals that it's getting from the environment. Without those signals, we have our own internal rhythm. But our own internal rhythm has its own timing that's usually not 24 hours. I was not providing my body adequate signals or the wrong signals. What we identified is that what I have is a long tau. Tau is the term used to determine your own internal period of a day. And so what was ending up happening is because I was maintaining this very normal lifestyle rhythm, my, I was basically putting myself into a state of perpetual jet lag, right? This jet lag is if you travel across time zones, then it takes days for your body to readjust, you know, to get in sync with the new time zone. But because I was constantly shifting my rhythms during the weekend and then back to a 24-hour pattern during the week, um, I was in a perpetual state of jet lag and things got worse and worse for me. But once we identified that, then the therapy was really the best therapy by far was to get bright light exposure in the morning. And, you know, we can talk a little bit about what are the things that will affect your circadian rhythm in a positive way. But yes, <laughs> a long minute answer to your straightforward and simple question. I did have sleep issues. Dan, that was really interesting how you liken that kind of weekend schedule to putting yourself through jet lag. I think having a completely different schedule, that's really normal in our culture. Yeah, it's a really good analogy. And you don't have to travel to New York to experience the jet lag of traveling to New York and back over the weekend. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> a little follow-up question too. When you were experiencing this and, you know, you said you went to Stanford for your sleep study, was this before that you started getting into sleep research? Was this when you started studying it or what's the kind of timeline here? Well, the irony is that they coincided perfectly with the start of the job. So I was learning more about it. Uh, but it, the, the symptoms that I'd been experiencing were happening very severely before I got the job related to sleep. I didn't know what was happening to me. I didn't know why I was so sleepy. And so as soon as I started to learn a lot more about it, then I was able to get kind of the right diagnosis, I guess, which was mm -hmm. the diagnosis was just that I need to maintain a better circadian rhythm. And by the way, some people that maintain this very normal lifestyle rhythm, it's called social jet lag, by the way, some people it affects more than others. And that's why I explain like there are own internal rhythms, because my my rhythm gets off more easily than some. If I stay up late on the weekends, then it's gonna I'm going to shift faster. So that means I'm going to experience the the negative detriments of a an adjusted time frame on Monday morning more severely than others will. <laughs> I wish I knew then what I know now, but that's one of the reasons that motivates me to share this information with people. So that actually brings us to another question, Dan, which we are really um, interested in learning your kind of basic recommendations for correcting things and getting optimal sleep. One thing yeah. that Mickey and I were curious about is as you progressed in this career as a sleep researcher, do you remember the moment when you realized that some of the things you were learning in your research could help people? And what was that like? Oh, gosh. 
Well, so my trajectory for my involvement with sleep, I started as a sales rep for the company Orphan Medical. They were working with the FDA to develop medications for orphan disorders. And so what an orphan disorder is a condition that has 200,000 people or less within the United States and is often not large enough for large pharmaceutical companies to want to develop medications for. And I ended up having longer conversations with doctors. So I was not like a pop-up ad, you know, where I just stop in and be like, hey, remember to, you know, prescribe our drug. But I'd actually get into pretty deep conversations, very deep conversations with the people that I spoke to about sleep. The more I learned, the more fascinated it became, I became with it. It was just, it was kind of an unfolding. And being me, <laughs> I kind of obsessed about it. And I would just read every day at least three to five articles. I ended up transitioning to a different role where I did all scientific training for all new hires and then eventually was brought on as the first member of medical affairs. So I ended up then uh, writing a lot of uh, you know book chapters and, and articles on the mechanism of action of the drug. And so that launched my career. But the whole time, I was always thinking about application or how to help people sleep better. Because earlier in my career, I'd worked with Dean Ornish doing lifestyle research, looking at how things like stress management, diet, exercise, et cetera, can help affect the progression of diseases, particularly prostate cancer, which was the trial that I worked on. I wasn't there for very long. I was there for about a year, but um, it made a very powerful impression on me. And I knew that one day that is exactly what I wanted to get back to, which is creating interventions, testing them to help people live better because it's very needed. Yeah. So even though I was kind of taking a deep dive into the science, kind of always thinking about how can we help people avoid a lot of the perils of misaligned circadian rhythms or improper sleep. That's when I started my PhD. And then I also started um, working on dance plans. So it was kind of like, okay, let me continue with one foot into the kind of the research. But then I also want to have another foot in creating tools and applications that then kind of help people live better. So that's, that's my history there. Interesting, Dan. And I mean, I, as someone who's kind of gone through a similar, you know, there's no aha, you, you just kind of you're figuring something out for yourself and then you're thrust into this research and then also trying to get the word out about something. It feels like it's happening all at once. It sounds like that's kind of what happened for you. Yeah. Um, I know we've had a similar experience in just learning about diet and lifestyle and autoimmune disease, trying to get the word out. We're just like immersed in it from all angles. You can't even really remember like when you decided to say, <laughs> I know this is going to change the world and I'm going to put it out there, you know? <laughs> Um, yeah. Yeah. Good for you guys. <laughs> uh, well, good for you too. I mean, I've been personally affected by your work because I'd never heard of circadian rhythm until I started getting into the paleo community and hearing about why sleep is important. And I know that a lot of that work was influenced by your work and I heard you on a lot of podcasts. So, Wow. Thank you. That's great to hear. Yeah. Um, and so about Dan's plan, we found this quote as a part of the manifesto um, on your website. And for people that don't know, we can have you uh, describe a little bit about Dan's plan, but it's a really great program that Dan has created. Um, and we'd like to read it to our audience because we really believe in this concept. It's very close to what we teach. Health is an adjective and a verb. You must cultivate a health practice to be healthy today. You need to participate. No one can be healthy for you. We want to make it easier for you. So what does it look like for a person to go from being a bystander to a participant in their personal well-being? So that is very much about what Dan's plan is about. And I can tell you that the way the tool is today is a kind of only a fraction of what come. But the emphasis is on thinking about what does it take tools, education uh, services 
facilitate health behaviors in others. So all that an individual has to say is, you know, I want to, I want this to be better. I want to know more about this, et cetera. And then a tool can kind of service them, can guide them, can help put them in a place with where not only is there better information, but a year, two years, three years down the line, they're still doing the thing that gets them the results. That is basically the emphasis of what my work. And I created a loop model or behavior model to sustain health behaviors. And the executive summary of it is, is simple, but it's why should you do something? How do you do it? Are you doing it? And is it working? And so if you think about a lot of information on the internet or the way that people expect behavior, behavior change to happen is by giving information. So here's my book. Here's my podcast. Here's my blog, right? And that is wonderful because information can affect somebody's attitudes, their motivations, their desire to try to actually pursue it. But it's also not the only way to change behavior. So oftentimes, once you know the rationale for why a topic is important, the follow-up to that is, and here is my cookbook, right? Here is, here is how you apply this to your life, right? Over the course of a 24-hour period of a day, these are the things you do. And then there is the tracking component. So oftentimes in the health sphere, you have those two levels of information, why it's important, how to do it. Then you see things like trackers, like Fitbits, et cetera, that are saying, let's monitor one of these activities. And part of, I think, our teaching is to say, okay, these tools can help you and we can help put you into a better, you know, a really good mindset, but you have to be the one that is in control of, of kind of doing the things that get you the results. In a couple of months, I'll be releasing Human OS, which will replace Dance Plan. Basically, it's a fuller version of the loop model. And so there are there is education and programming and tracking and all that. But um, people can use it any way that they want. I mean, if you want to just do it for the education and not track everything you can. But the idea is that there's this suite of tools and, you know, learning modules that put you, again, in a, in a state to better regulate your health in a variety of ways. Angie and I both know that tracking is a really important part of the journey, something that we really encourage people to do. And I just have a, a quick question about tracking and science, um, because I know you're probably really familiar with the research. Why is it that when we decide to track a metric, so whether that is how many steps we're taking or what we're eating, um, how we're sleeping or our symptoms, why is it that those metrics usually improve without us actually having to force ourselves to change anything. Yeah. So that's, uh, you know, it goes back to that principle of you, know, you can't measure anything without changing it. And I think one way that trackers are misinterpreted is though the value that you get from tracking is it's just telling you what you're doing. That's part of the value. I actually think that the better part of the value of engaging with a tracker is that it's a performance enhancing device. By wearing it, it is a trigger in your environment to remind you of why you're wearing it, right? So that's part of the reason why a lot of people will fail or stop using the devices. If there's, if there's uncertainty or they're not clear about why they're using it, then they might try it as a toy for a little bit, but then it's easy to give it up. But if you say, okay... I know why steps are, are really good for me. I know how it, they, steps fit into my overall physical activity practice. I know how my physical activity practice fits into my overall health practice. I know how my health practice is solving this problem that I understand. If you can create clarity along that line, then the friction of using a device like a Fitbit, et cetera, becomes de minimis. 
that's why I think that it's better to think of these as performance enhancing devices than just trackers, right? Part of the benefit of starting to use any of these devices like, okay, well, now I know how much sleep I'm getting. And now I know how much, you know, what 10,000 steps approximately feels like. But it is the ability for you to continue to promote the right behavior with continual usage, which is its value. But you have to then, again, educate around that so that people are interpreting the value and the device correctly. And uh, that's why I think just giving somebody a, a Fitbit without education, some people will benefit and a lot will fail. You know, you you touched on it just a few minutes ago. It's that whole ownership piece, right? Like that so goes to the heart of Mickey and I's book. We really think that a big part of the journey to wellness uh, for someone with autoimmune disease is just owning the whole process and really focusing on on what you're trying to achieve, not just the tools that will achieve it One question we had for you, Dan, obviously, is the basics for everyone to get some optimal sleep. What are your kind of big recommendations out there for folks to be able to dial that in? So I've created a concept called the restorative sleeper. And the restorative sleeper starts with an aspiration, which is to wake refreshed and feel alert all day, every day, right? So anybody can say, okay, yeah, I want that. So then you say, okay, well, if if that if you want that to be the case for yourself, then how do we engineer that? And one way then is to look at, well, what are the determinants of sleep satisfaction, sleep quality? Sleep satisfaction, by the way, is feeling restored from the night's sleep, waking up in the morning and feeling like, okay, that was, I'm not fighting any uh, unresolved sleep pressure, still kind of groggy, et cetera. Now, some people, by the way, you might, might wake up and it can take, you know, it's not like you're necessarily bursting out of bed. And if you're not, then that means you didn't get a good night's sleep. But it means within like, you know, half an hour to an hour that you're feeling very robustly alert and you feel that way throughout the day. So that's the goal. So then you look at what are the, the, the determinants of good sleep and it's timing, intensity, and duration. So duration is the most common way for people to interpret sleep. So how much sleep did you get? Um, but a good way to understand why that's not the only thing that matters is let's say you won't usually go to bed at night but wake up at 8, but one morning or one night you go to bed at 4 a.m. and wake up at noon. It's eight hours of sleep, but it's not going to be as restorative as it was if you were to sleep from, from midnight until 8, if that's the period that you usually sleep in. And so consistency of your sleep timing also really matters, and that's because aspects of sleep have a circadian rhythmicity to them. This idea of circadian rhythms is these repeatable 24-hour processes, these things that happen every day, usually at the same time. These could be you know, cell cycle and growth patterns. It could be certain behaviors. It can be physiological functions. Uh, anyway, the robustness of these circadian rhythms will determine how well certain functions happen. And so if you're more likely to get REM sleep, good, robust REM sleep at 4 a.m. on a night that you go to bed at midnight when you usually go to bed at midnight, then you are to get it at 10 a.m. on a night that you go to bed at 4, right? So the actual depth and efficiency of these different sleep cycles will be better when you're sleeping in a consistent period. So that's really important to know. And both of those whether it's sleep duration and sleep timing, those are actionable. So you can say, okay, well, I'm going to plan to have enough time in bed, right? You can't necessarily, I mean, you, you can't always control how much sleep you get, but you, you know that you're not going to get eight hours if you're in bed for six. And you can also plan on when the timing of that sleep occurs. So you want to limit the amount of variability in terms of when that sleep pattern is occurring. So you don't want to be going to bed at, at you know, 
10 p.m. one night and two the next and have that constantly be fluctuating. Now, some people, because of their work, they have to do that. But a lot of people, because of their work, choose to do that. So it's volitional. And and I call it the new shift work, right? So the old shift work was, well, you know, usually I work from eight to five, but on one night a week, I, I work from five to 2 a.m. Right? So nurses or police officers, fire, they'll have to do something like that. But other people, what I call the modern shift work, you know, you'll get home from work, you'll have dinner with family, let's say, and then you'll go back to work after things quiet down. People do that because the flow of volume of work is usually so high and it's a period of time that's quiet. You're not getting bombarded with as many emails. And so for many people, it's the best time from there for them to get things done because it's the only time of day that doesn't have the interruption that is characteristic of every other part of the day. It's that incentive that will, can, can cause this pattern, and it's not irregular for people to then say, okay, well, some nights I'm going to bed at this time, and other nights I'm going to bed later. Some, some people just have to do that, but there are consequences to that as well. Dan, if people do need to vary their schedule, what amount of time do you think is getting into trouble? And is that individual? So are we talking like, you know, an hour or like three hours? What would you say is kind of the max for people to vary? Yeah. So a circadian rhythm can shift up to three hours a day under kind of ideal circumstances. That's why you can't fully adjust if you travel from here to Italy you know, you can't just fully adjust within one day. Optimally, you know, you could maybe fully adjust within three days, but that's much faster than typical. You know, typically it's somewhere between five and 10 days where you're feeling kind of as robust physically and mentally as you were from the time zone you left from. What I would say is, you know, when you're any bit of adjustment is going to cause your circadian rhythms to, you know, be, be shifting a bit. And you don't feel optimal if there's any shift happening. But the larger that shift, the more you'll feel it. My vulnerability is I get very sleepy. I struggle finding words. I can't think of things that I know well. Also, even just the, the power with which I am vocalizing is, you can tell, it's, it's hampered. It's, it's, you know, it's almost like I kind of slurring. So that's one thing that I definitely notice when I am sleep deprived. My ability to speak and to think of words is really affected. Yeah, so we all have our own, you know, vulnerabilities, but a lot of these vulnerabilities are present even if we don't detect them. And the degree to which that is really problematic depends on what your vulnerability is, how much it affects your job and what you do, and then the consequences of that. And then there's the physiological side, which is what's happening inside of you. You know, for, for example, like, you know, the regulation of your immune system, which I know is intimate interest for what you guys are doing. So you know, some of these things are happening inside of you that you won't really detect. Um, but what I always encourage people to do is to get to get back in touch with what really good sleep feels like. And that often means trying to optimize your sleep timing and sleep duration and then also light intensity during the day uh, for at least three weeks. Getting in touch with what that feels like. And then what that can do is further empower good behavior going forward. Because what happens with a lot of people is you're like, wow, I felt really good. And I want to feel like that more often. And then that can basically help you make those hard decisions around, you know, glasses at night, which I'll explain in a moment, going to bed a little bit early, maybe not watching another episode of a show that's really engaging to you, like, you know, making those hard decisions and saying, I'd rather feel better tomorrow. And I'll just put this stuff off till, you know, till later. 
Yeah, those are great recommendations. I think uh, Mickey and I know really personally what it feels like to make a health decision that was hard in the beginning, but uh, turns out to be so rewarding. You realize how much better you feel. You, if you feel better than you knew you could feel, then it's easy to keep making the decision. So I used to work as a barista, which was a really bad combination with uh, a job that causes extreme sleep loss because I had to be at work at 4.45 in the morning. And then also a job that provides a solution and caffeine and sugar. <laughs> you know, I could basically eat all the pastries and drink all the coffee that I wanted. So it was really easy to mask the horrible way that I felt when I woke up every morning. But, you know, I've definitely reformed my ways. And now uh, my husband and I go to bed by nine every single day to the point where sometimes, I'm not going to lie, we slip into bed at probably like 8.15 and it's actually a problem if if I get into bed too early because then I won't fall asleep. Um, and so I actually have to make myself stay out of bed. <laughs> I really prioritize it to the point where I get a little bit obsessive about it. Yeah, I, so. that is funny. It's, uh, you know, waking up, I'll just make one, one comment about timing because there's this, you know, lore that isn't sleep before midnight better than sleep after. It, it has more to do with the consistency of your schedule. Let's say you do get up, have to get up at 4 a.m. because of your job. That's fine if you maintain a regular schedule. So the days that you're not working, it's probably better to continue to wake up at 4 a.m. and go to bed at 8 than to then sleep in until, you know, 9 and go to bed at 1 a.m. because that then is going to cause more shifting in your rhythm. So try to maintain consistency. And if your schedule is a little bit off from standard because, you know, you've got to get up super early, then you might have to make some of those sacrifices usually in some, you know, social activities later in the evening. Uh, right. So if you're going to bed at, you know, 830, then that might mean that, you know, going out to, you know, a dinner party that starts at nine on Friday, you know, you might have to make a hard decision there. Um, it's up to you. But it, there is some, some consequences to it. Yeah, the, the social consequences have been <laughs> the hardest part for me. I mean, I live on a farm. So, you know, the chickens crow and whenever the sun comes up, you know, during the summer, I'm up at 530 or six. So, you know, the early bedtime works for me, but that's where I get into trouble is maintaining a social life, going to the city, you know, uh, that those are nights where I'm a zombie right. at a party, right, right. <laughs> basically, because my body is like, why are you doing this to me? <laughs> um, so, you know, it's all, all things that we have to weigh the, the benefits and, you know, the routine and everything. But I was going to say, I really like to dance. And but so much dancing, t you know, starts after 10. And I'm like, why can't we just have, you know, parties that start at five? And <laughs> some good music. <laughs> Dan, whatever you do, don't go to Argentina uh, and dance because oh my, God. They, my family is Argentinian and they only dance after midnight, if not after 2 a.m. That's when they actually leave to go out. So I know you're kind of working on reforming our public sleep culture here in the U.S., but South America has a real problem. <laughs> <laughs> I was at a wedding uh, in September, and uh, they were still dancing at 6.30 in the morning. The sun was coming up. Like, that's, 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 a th that's normal. Every weekend for them, like, <laughs> that's how they do it. So it's a little and, intense. <laughs> and it's a good, you know, it's a good point to, to actually say uh, it's, it's, it's also good to then just at times give in and go, you know, go have a great time and enjoy that wedding and stay up late. And, you know, I think it's, it's more about, 
not always saying no to all of those opportunities, but maintaining that your general pattern is not one that is always in high fluctuation. And also, I should say, too, that there are cultures around the world that maintain a siesta during the day. So they do have a later night activities, but then there's also a two-hour period during the middle of the afternoon where a nap happens. The, those cultures are actually suffering when, as you know, economic pressures are causing the siesta period to disappear, but then the social behaviors uh, of staying up late and starting dinner late and dancing late are maintained. And so now, before where there wasn't a problem, now now the same behaviors without the rest period, adequate rest, is is a problem. Wow, that is so interesting. I, I never thought about that. That is really, really interesting. I've always kind of envied those siesta cultures, but the, the point about the you know economic consequences is really interesting. Dan, earlier you you started to mention the infamous amber glasses, and I know that light exposure matters a lot to sleep. Maybe you can tell our audience about how that affects optimal sleep. Yeah, so we've been talking about circadian rhythms, these 24-hour patterns of activity that affect all of our cells and throughout our body. And I'll give you a concrete example just so that can solidify. The major synchronizer of all of the rhythms in our body is the light-dark cycle of our environment. And there are other influences as well, but the major one is light-dark. So how does that work? Well, where is light perceived? Certainly in the eyes. And there are special cells in the back of the eye that will send then a message to different parts of the brain. So depending on what receptor is stimulated, so it's rods and cones, it goes to the visual cortex where we can convert that stimulation into images. But there's also it can also go back to something, an area of the brain called the suprachiasmatic nucleus, which is in the hypothalamus, and it is considered the master clock. The light-dark pattern that is entering into our eye will affect gene expression taking place in this part of the brain and downstream of that, which means as a, in, in result to that, you see the activity of a variety of things that are influenced, whether it's your, the activity of your autonomic nervous system or it is the production of neuroendocrine hormones, which will then affect you know endocrinology throughout the body or hormones throughout the body uh, and also activity and behavior patterns right so how how we feel what we choose to do hungry etc laura hooper is an immunologist at U- university of texas southwestern and she gave mice jet lag by shifting their light so what she did is that every four days she would adjust their cycles by six hours by putting them into a different light pattern just shifting when they're getting light by six hours so when their light pattern was thrown off, so was their immune system. So what is the connection there? Well, again, because of this activity that's taking place in the master clock, the relationship between the immune system is strong. So some of these, there are one of the products that is produced in response to this activity of this uh, master clock in the brain can then affect uh, T cells in the body, which are immune cells. Um, one of them, one of these T cells is something called TH17, which will produce an immune chemical, uh, interleukin-17. This is something that is very active within our gut. It has a very important role. So, you know, in fact, one of the things that it does is it helps to fight infection, bacterial infection, and, and fungal infections. And so you need this to be active. You need the activity to happen at the right time, and you need it to happen in the right amount. But what happens when you have this really shifted light schedule is that you have over over activity of IL-17 within the gut, and then this causes inflammation. And inflammation can then cause inflammatory disease over time. And that can look many different ways. 
And that is really a fundamental aspect of some autoimmune conditions, which is very difficult to pin down, by the way. You can see you know, some sort of shift in your light rhythms, overactivity of these immune cells in the gut, and then chronic inflammation that can lead to <laughs> a lot of different things. Yeah, this connection is very, very powerful. And that's why we want to maintain light rhythms that are more natural. And so part of the restorative sleep philosophy or program that I've put together is not only just maintaining that you have enough time in bed and that timing of your sleep is consistent, but also to maintain smart light rhythms day, evening, and night. What that means is that you're getting a lot of bright light during the day. It's getting outside for at least a half an hour during a break, take a walk, eat lunch outside, get outside when you can. We're lucky that a lot of the, what I call anchoring effect to anchor your circadian rhythm so they're not drifting can take place with only a half an hour of light exposure instead of having to be outside all day long because that would be a lot harder for people to achieve. The best thing to think about is what's happening outside, right? When it's day, get bright light. In the evening, what happens to light? Well, it dims in intensity and changes in tone, right? So you want to turn lights off around your home. I have these blue light filtering light bulbs that I use in my bedroom. The reason why you want to filter blue light is because blue light is a very powerful signal that it's daytime. So you want that during the day, but you don't want that during the evening. And so what you can do is create circadian darkness or virtual darkness where you can see, but you're not telling the brain that it's day. And that's a very good thing to do for your health and also for mental performance. That's why I wear blue filtering glasses in the evening. You've heard me mention these glasses a couple of times. They filter, again, blue light. So blue light's not entering into my eye. So if I'm walking around, I've got lights on, I'm doing a little reading in bed, even though I can see I'm not sending a wrong signal to my brain. And then at night, maintaining good amount of darkness. There's some ideas with kind of floating the health sphere that your room has to be absolutely pitch black. I don't think that it's a problem if it's pitch black, but I don't want people to have anxiety if a little bit of light is coming in through the door, et cetera, because that is inadequate to cause a sort of shift in your circadian rhythms or to suppress melatonin. I wouldn't worry too much, but make an effort to make it as dark as possible, but don't stress if there's you know a little bit of light here and there. Wow, that is so fascinating how much light plays into the autoimmune piece of this. Did you know about all of that, Mickey? You know, not specifically with TH17, but I have done some research about the effect of TH17 in autoimmune conditions, and it's very integral to have a healthy functioning immune system, whether that's strong enough to fight the infections that we are presented with, but also not overactive as to ramp up the autoimmune process. So yeah, really interesting. Right. It's so interesting how light affects that TH17. That, thanks so much for sharing that, Dan, that our audience will really benefit from that information. Absolutely. Yeah. And also, I want to add for people that are a little bit like, I don't know about these glasses, guys, like this is kind of weird. They're actually very profoundly helpful to use the amber glasses. I don't know, Dan, if it's it's just for people that are exceptionally sensitive to light like I might be, but I know that the difference is incredible when I use them. The way I use them is when it's dark and I'm using a screen or have the lights on in the house after dark, I wear the glasses before I go to bed. And if I don't do that, it takes me a good hour, two hours extra to fall asleep. So I'm very sensitive to light before bed. If you could add a little bit about that too for folks, because I know some people are just like, I don't know about that. (laughs) 
yeah, and I get it. Some of the things you can do for your health, right, because it's your choice, mean that you have to do things that are different than what most people are doing. But if you don't want normal health outcomes, then you have to do things a little bit differently. Yeah. And I'm okay with that. But that's a personal choice. And this is an area that it almost seems hokey. Yeah. I don't usually talk about light until I have enough time to explain it. While wearing glasses at, you know, in the evening does sound strange, the idea that light is affecting our body and that we're maintaining a very different light pattern with artificial light and how these light patterns are very new to our physiology, that's not hard to believe at all. What I do is I have an alarm on my phone. It's at 8 o'clock, and I keep my glasses in a place where I am at that time. So it's usually downstairs you know, by the kitchen, and then I, you know, I put them on, and then I take them off right when I go to bed. And it's actually easy. So part of doing the right behavior regularly, even if you get the glasses, is to then have things that will help your behavior to happen. So having them in the right spot at the right time, having triggers on your, you know, on your phone that kind of remind you to say, oh, yeah, okay, it's 8 o'clock. And then also you're not going to, again, do that if you don't know why. You know, melatonin is a darkness hormone. So it's produced when the brain stops getting the signal of blue light. So you start to produce melatonin earlier in the night when you start to wear the glasses, which helps you feel sleepier sooner, which helps you get in bed at a better time because you feel like going to bed sooner. But melatonin has effects throughout the body. It's a very powerful antioxidant. And it also, in fact, some recent research by Jeff and Palouse at University of Kentucky, he showed that our GI system will also express circadian patterns, which will then affect gene expression and motility and secretion and the activity of our gut microbiota. And a lot of these are prokaryotic, which means they don't have their own internal circadian rhythms. But the pattern of activity of our gut bugs is basically controlled by our circadian rhythms. As melatonin is not only secreted by the pineal gland, but it's also secreted in this gastrointestinal lumen. So you have melatonin entering into your GI system, which will then affect the motility and the patterns of these bugs, which the bugs are, you know, do a lot of things that influence our health. They'll produce uh, short chain fats that affect the health of our intestinal lining. They produce hormones that affect receptors that keep us full. They're a part of our health. Um, and it's a good way to think about that. They're waiting for the right signal too to do the right behavior. And for example, one thing that came from Jiffin's work is that not every species of gut bug is affected equally. And so you see these things called aerogens, which are a type of bug. They become very mobile in the presence of melatonin, but Escheria coli and other more kind of pathogenic bacteria don't. And so that might have some important function at keeping pathogens down and keeping inflammation down as well. So not only is it affecting immune system directly, but like everything in our body, there's multiple signals and coordination that's taking place. So yeah, if you want to produce melatonin, you have to then allow for the environment to have the right signals so it's stimulated. So just one other reason to wear those glasses in the evening. Wow, that is like totally blew my mind about the gut bacteria. (laughs) It's crazy because there are more of them than there are us. And I didn't even know that some of them depend on our production of melatonin. They're like, hey, go to sleep. I want to do my job. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Really, really interesting. I think the more we learn about the gut, I think the more our minds are going to be blown about how interconnected all of this is. We don't even know. It's really cool. Wow. Just mind-blowing stuff. That's just so cool. Thanks (laughs) so much for sharing with us today, Dan. It has been a pleasure. Mickey and I have been following you for a long time, and it's just awesome that you were willing to come on today and share with our audience. Where can folks find you if they want to follow what you're up to? 
Yeah, well, thank you for having me on. It was a real pleasure to speak with you guys, too. I think you're doing really great work, and it's nice to be here. And um, if anybody wants to follow you know, some of the work that I'm doing and the impending release of Human OS, you can sign up for Dan's plan. Some people that use our site don't use the tools, but they really like to follow the blog. So I'll try to put out blog articles at least once a week. I'm doing this big series on aging right now, which even if it's not a immediate interest of you, these are things that anybody who's over 30 should be paying attention to because there are things you can do now, some of which which are really fun, like drinking champagne a couple times a week, <laughs> can actually influence significantly how we age. So I would encourage everybody to log in, get the blogs, you know, so if you sign up, you can even sign up directly at the blog. So blog at danceplan.com. Great. That'll be a goldmine for people um, <laughs> following all that information, especially if you're telling them to drink champagne. <laughs> I, I mean, right? <laughs> yeah, it's the phenolic compounds or phenols that are in the champagne that were given to mice and they watched them how they performed in maze tests. They were able to uh, or perform better on these maze tests than they were without the compounds by a significant percentage. As scientists are estimating is that the equivalent amount for humans would be to have a glass of champagne like two to three times a week. That's some health advice I can get behind. <laughs> well, thanks so much for being with us today, Dan. Uh, what a great note to leave it on. Yeah, totally. <laughs> you guys have a great day. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on this episode of the Autoimmune Wellness Podcast. We're honored to have you as a listener, and we hope that you've gained some useful information. You can learn more about the topic we explored today. It's covered in detail in our book, The Autoimmune Wellness Handbook, along with handy self-assessments, checklists, and other useful resources to put your plan into action. Pick up a copy today. If you enjoyed the podcast, please leave us a review in iTunes, as this helps others find us. You can also connect with us through our blog, autoimmune-paleo.com, and with the community by using the hashtag autoimmunewellness. wellness.